Thank you for staying tuned. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi, and this is the commentary to Parashat Va'et Hanan, I Pleaded. The address is Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 23, through chapter 7, verse 11. We are in the middle of a discussion about the, um, the words found in the book of Deuteronomy here. We have already spoken about the Asarat Hadvarim, the ten words. We also talked briefly about the commission that God gave to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 4. And so, um, if you'd like more information on those two discussions, the Great Commission, as I call it, the Jewish Great Commission, as well as more information on the Asrat HaDavrim, either listen to part A of this commentary, or as far as the, uh, the, the Ten Commandments are concerned, you can uh, access my commentary to uh, Parashat Yitro, which is Exodus, covers Exodus chapter 20. Uh, you can get that available at this website, both in written and audio form. Let's move now into what's really going to occupy the remainder and the bulk of my commentary today. This next section is entitled, Hear, O Israel. Um, I want to turn my discussion now to a look at the Shema. And the word Shema means hear or listen. Uh, and it refers to, you know, the, 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 the uh, proper noun Shema in Judaism, refers to a set of passages, two of them taken out of Deuteronomy, one of them taken out of the book of Numbers. And they refer to basically a, a, an ideal in Judaism, an ideal that evokes images of monotheism, idea, uh, ideals of loyalty to God alone, ideals of um, commitment to God, fidelity to God. Um, we're talking about verses that, that, that really speak of joining oneself to God and to His Word. And that's how Judaism has um, interacted with the three passages that have come to be known as the Shema. Now, just to give you a hint, when Yeshua was questioned when He walked this earth, when Yeshua was questioned by leaders of His day, and they asked him, what is the greatest commandment? It's interesting to notice that Yeshua quotes what we now call the Shema. He would say, the greatest commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he would say that the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So it, even though the Torah itself does not label the Shema as the greatest commandment, isn't it quite fascinating that by Yeshua's day, the Judaisms of his day had already um, given these passages that special significance, and when Yeshua was asked, he fell right in line with their halakhic understanding of the passages. That is to suggest that when they asked him the specific question, what is the greatest commandment, Yeshua was already familiar with the, um, the, the tradition that surrounds these particular verses. And so what I want to do first before I go into my commentary is I want to go ahead and take my prayer book and I want to turn to page 95. You're welcome to follow along with me. And I want to read the, um, those, those verses from the Shema. Um, but what I want to do is I want to read the blessing first in, in page 89. And then after I read the blessings of the Shema, I'll read the three passages from the Shema, that is the Deuteronomy, the two Deuteronomy passages and then the Numbers passage. I'm going to read them in English for you, and then I'm going to read them in Hebrew for you. And what this will allow you to do, those of you who are trying to practice your Hebrew, the, number one, this will give you a chance to uh, get an audio recording of the Shema, uh, the three passages. I highly recommend that you, if you are practicing your prayers, um, 
especially if you're following along in a prayer book like the Siddur, I'm using the Art Scroll um, Sephardic version here. If you're practicing your ver your uh, your passages and your prayers, then the Shema is a good place to start memorizing Hebrew. I uh, uh, I I think it's common practice in Judaism that Jewish people memorize the Shema. In fact, I'm pretty sure that it's the very first set of passages that a Jewish child learns as far as memorizations are concerned. But after I talk about these verses in the Shema, I'm going to launch from the monotheistic aspect of the Shema into a commentary about the Christian concept known as Trinity. Okay? That's where we're going to go today. So first, I'm going to turn to page 89 in the um, Art Scroll Siddur, uh, where the blessings of the Shema would begin. Um... And I just want to say this. Uh, let's see. The blessing is going to start here. It reads, quote, Baruchu et Adonai hamivorach, Baruch Adonai hamivorach liulam va'ed. And then it says, um, Blessed is Adonai the Blessed One. Blessed is Adonai the Blessed One for all eternity. Blessed, praised, glorified, exalted, and appraised is the name of the King who rules over kings, the Holy One, blessed be He. For He is the first, and He is the last, and aside from Him there is no God. Extol Him who rides the highest heavens with His name, Yah, and exult before Him. His name is exalted beyond every blessing and praise. Blessed is the name of His glorious kingdom for all eternity. Blessed be the name of Hashem from this time and forever. And then I want to turn to page 95, where the first thing we read is, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. The English is, Hear, O Israel, Adonai is our God, Adonai, the one and only. And in an undertone, Below that we would sing Baruch Shem Kavod Malchuto Leolam Vayed. In the English it reads, Blessed is the name of his glorious kingdom for all eternity. And then we turn the page to 97 and we encounter the first uh, passage, the first paragraph of the Shema, which um, in, let's see, should I read the Hebrew first or then the English? Let's, let's read the Hebrew first, okay? The Hebrew of the first paragraph reads this way, Va'ahavta et Adonai Elohecha b'kolavavcha uvchol nafshcha uvchol meudecha v'hayu hadvarim ha'ile asher anochi mitzavcha hayom al levavcha v'shinantam levanecha v'dibarta bam b'shivdeka b'vetera uvlechdeka v'derech uvshachbacha uvkumecha Ukshatam loot al yadacha vahayu latotafot bain enecha uktatam al mezuzot betacha uvish arecha. The English reads You shall love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your resources. Let these matters that I command you today be upon your heart. Teach them thoroughly to your children and speak of them while you sit in your home, while you walk on the way, when you retire, and when you arise. Bind them as a sign upon your arm, and let them be to be to feel in between your eyes, and write them on the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. That's Deuteronomy six, verses five through nine. 
And the second paragraph, which uh, is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 13 through 21, obviously a little bit longer passage, uh, according to the commentary or according to the prayer book, um, it mentions that uh, this these verses concentrate on accepting... Well, let me just back up the first paragraph, Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 through 9, which is part of our Torah portion today. It mentions in the paragraph, or in the uh, commentary, that these passages, according to the sages, concentrate on accepting the commandment to love God. And in this next paragraph, it mentions within these verses, chapter 11, verses 13 to 21, it mentions that these verses concentrate on accepting all the commandments and the concept of reward and punishment. So let's read that in Hebrew first, and then I'll read it for you in English. The Hebrew reads, im tishmau el mitzvotai, asher anochi et chem hayom la'ahava et Adonai elochechem ul'avdo b'chol levavkem u'v'chol nafshochem v'natati matar artzachem be'ito yore u'malkosh va'asafta d'ganecha v'tiroshtaka v'yitzharecha v'natatai esev b'sadcha livhemtcha v'achalta v'savaata Hishamru lachem pen yifte lavavchem v'sartem v'avadtem Elohim acherim v'hishtacha vitem lachem v'chara af Adonai bachem v'atzar et hashamayim v'lo yiye matar v'haadama lo titen et yuvula v'avadtem mehera מאל הארץ הטובה אשר אדוני נותן לכם ושמתם את דברי אלה על לבבכם ועל נשפכם וכשרתם אותם לאות על ידכם והיו לתותפות בין עיניכם ולימדתם אותם את ביניכם לדבר בם בשבתך, בביתך ובלכתך, ודרך ובשקבך ובקומך. וכתבתם על מזוזות ביתך ובשעריך, למען ירבו ימיכם וימי ביניכם על האדמה אשר נשבע אדוני לאבותיכם, לתת להם כי ימי השמים על הארץ. English translation is, and it will come to pass that if you continually hearken to my commandments that I command you today, to love Hashem your God, to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will provide rain for your land in its proper time, the early and late rains that you may gather in your grain, your wine, and your oil. I will provide grass in your field for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. Beware lest your heart be seduced, and you turn astray and serve gods of others, and bow to them. Then the wrath of Hashem will blaze against you. He will restrain the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the ground will not yield its produce. And you will swiftly be banished from the goodly land which Hashem gives you. Place these words of mine upon your heart and upon your soul. Bind them for a sign upon your arm, and let them be to feel in between your eyes. Teach them to your children to discuss them while you sit in your home, while you walk on the way, when you retire, and when you arise. And write them on the doorposts of your house and upon your gates, in order to prolong your days and the days of your children upon the ground that Hashem has sworn 
to your ancestors to give them like the days of the heaven on the earth, end quote. The final paragraph, the third paragraph, uh, is taken not from the book of Deuteronomy, but instead from the book of Numbers. And the prayer book mentions before reciting the third paragraph, it mentions to take the tzitzit, which have been held in the left hand, they're taken in the right hand, and they're kissed at each mention of the word tzitzit at the end of the paragraph. They're passed before the eyes uh, at the that you may see it. In other words, Judaism, with its recitation of the Shema, gets demonstrative, so that when the Torah says... Uh, they shall be a thread for you to look upon. We actually grab them in our hands and we look at them at that moment as we're speaking these particular words. So let me read this passage um, in Hebrew first and then uh, I'll read it in English again. Okay, the Hebrew reads, Vayomer Adonai el Moshe lemor daber el b'nei Yisrael va'amarta alehem va'asu lachem tzitzit al kanfei bigdehem Ledorotam v'nat nu al tzitzit ha'kanaf patil t'chilet v'haya lachem l'tzitzit uritem oto uzkartem et kol mitzvot Adonai v'asitem otam v'lo taturu achere levavchem v'achere enechem asher atem zonim acharehem l'ma'an tizkoru v'asitem Et kol mitzvotai v'hitem kadoshim le'elohechem. Ani Adonai Elohechem asher hotzeiti etchem mi'eretz mitzrayim l'chiyot lachem le'elohim. Ani Adonai Elohechem emet. And um, the uh, very last word in the Hebrew that I just read there where it says emet it's not actually in the passage. Rather, the prayer book adds at the very end where it says, I am, your, I am Adonai, your God. And then the prayer book adds the phrase, it is true, which is what emet means. So let's read the English now. It reads, quote, And Hashem said to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them that they are to make themselves tzitzit on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and they are to place upon the tzitzit of each corner a thread of tachelet, and the word tachelet, by the way, means blue. And it shall constitute tzitzit for you, that you may see it, and remember all the commandments of Hashem, and perform them, and not explore after your heart and after your eyes which you stray, so that you may remember and perform all my commandments, and be holy to your God. I am Hashem your God, who has removed you from the land of Egypt to be a God to you. I am Hashem your God. And then again, that's where the verse stops in the um, Torah, but the prayer book adds the final phrase, it is true, which they, they, they're not saying that that's part of the verse. It's just an extra clause um, that they're uh, uh, reminding the, the person who's reading through the prayers. Okay, So that is the passage. Those are the three passages of the Shema. And with that, I want to turn now back to our commentary. Let's pick up the um, discussion on the near the bottom of page 3, where we are really going to talk about how these passages have have uh, stirred up a discussion about the monotheism of God. We're really going to be talking about um, the, the, the oneness of God within his plurality. Um, the, um, we're, 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 we're trying to understand or comprehend or, or apprehend or, or affirm, however you want to, uh, whatever word you want to plug in there. We're going to try and um, take a look at God. Uh, what 
does God disclose about himself? Is he one? Is he three? Is he more? Uh, we're trying not to be disrespectful, obviously. Um, God is unknowable. Infinitely, he's unknowable outside of the revelation that he provides for us. We can only know God within the revelation that God has uh, given to us. And, of course, we know from our reading of the Apostolic Scriptures that the most perfect revelation of God has been in the person known as Yeshua. However, Jewish people have a hard time, traditionally, reconciling the revelation of God through Yeshua to what they have traditionally understood God to be explaining about himself throughout the Tanakh. So these are matters of ontology. Ontology is a branch of science that concerns itself with the makeup of things, how things are put together, or how things work, or how things uh, exist, I should say. And so, ontologically speaking, who is God? And that's kind of where the discussion is going to go. Now, let me just tell you up front, I'm not supposing I have all the answers. And quite honestly, language is going to fail us just about every time we have these types of discussions. For that reason, some people take this approach. They simply throw their hands up and say, because God is infinitely unknowable, it would be a disservice to try and talk about this topic. However, I'm not of that persuasion. I'm of the camp that the Bible gives us an adequate enough picture or revelation of God that we can come to some semi-conclusions especially with the help of the Holy Spirit. I say semi-conclusions because, using the words of Shaul, until this corruption is put off and we put on incorruption, that is to say, until we're perfected, we're going to view, we're going to look through this glass darkly or view through this, this mirror darkly or dimly. We just are not going to see the whole picture. But I believe that God is giving us part of the picture. So with that, let's turn to my commentary, bottom of page 3. This next section is entitled, Here... O Israel. Now, this next section is actually a truncated version of my very lengthy three-part series, wordplay intended, <laughs> pun intended, on the topic of the Trinity. And the word Trinity is in air, uh, is in uh, it's in italics in my commentary because the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. However, when Christians use the word Trinity, they are trying to convey their limited understanding, and I use the word limited because we all have limited understanding, they're trying to convey their limited understanding of God's revelation to his, um, to his created subjects. And so sometimes the word trinity can be misleading. Other times we need to opt for different words. I'm going to use the word triunity in, a, in, in this commentary as well. But no matter what term we use, language is inadequate, and we need to understand that. Um, so if you'd like to read those commentaries in their entirety... If you have the written commentary and you're following along in this audio commentary with the written notes in front of you, then the links are provided for you right there. Otherwise, they are available on our website at graftedin.com. Click on the Commentaries tab from the home page, and then click on More Lessons, and from the More Lessons section, you can find the um, uh, commentaries. They are labeled Shema 1, Shema 2, and Shema 3. Okay, So let's turn to the top of page 4. And we'll start there with our discussion about the Trinity, okay? The most notable feature of this week's portion is the Shema. And the word Shema, as I already mentioned earlier, means hear or listen intently. Uh, it, it really is a Hebrew imperative that carries the notion of an action-oriented command. In other words, 
um, we could say it like this. Now that you have heard, go and do something about it. Like if God says, hear, O Israel, he doesn't just want to tell them something and then ex uh, uh, expect them to walk away and not take action. Judaism, um, picking up on that, when God says, hear, O Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one, the idea is that God says, hear, O Israel, that is to say, listen and be ready to do something about it. Take action. Be jealous for my oneness and my singularity. My The fact that I am the only God. I am the one and only God. Uh, you are to take action and serve me alone. In fact, the next verse uh, says that. Here, O Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one. And you shall love. You know, it goes on to say. So, um, now that you've heard, go and do something about it. Just so you know, I'm going to engage in a, off, an awful lot of hashkafa today. Hashkafa is the Hebrew word for philosophy, or hashkafat. Um, and hashkafa is not very popular uh, with everyone. Some people would rather we just be the theological. But in, in matters like, uh, such as the ontology of God, we have to get philosophical um, just because of the nature <laughs> of, the, um, of the topic at hand. So a lot of what you're going to hear from me in this commentary today is indeed hashkafa. Okay? Um, my commentary on the Shema will introduce the difficult concept of the triunity of our unexplainable God. Again, triunity is just another clever way of saying one God who expresses himself in three persons or three personalities. The ancients called Hashem Ein Sof, and it's a term which quite literally means without borders. No borders, Ein Sof. Uh, I think it's Aramaic, to be honest with you. Uh, Ain so forth. It might be uh, Yiddish, but I, I don't think it's Hebrew. Um, it's a term which quite literally means without borders. Our God, because our, our God is infinitely unknowable. He really is. In fact, even with the revelation that he's given us, he's still unknowable. We, you know, the, the revelation he gives us blows our mind. And so we're not able to download, as it were, if I could use computer's terms. We're, our, our mind is not, able of, is not capable of downloading the information to comprehend our incomprehensible God. Yet because of our finite minds, he's chosen to express himself in ways that we can perceive. God knows. God, God knows the stuff we're made of because he made us. And so he knows we're not able to uh, uh, comprehend everything that he is. So he gives us a revelation that we can grasp and that we can relate to. We will have to wait to gain a fuller perception of him once we put off this corruptible flesh, as I mentioned earlier, and our eyes are able to see through this mirror clearly instead of darkly. Now, um, I want to share with you today what I believe the Shema uh, is, it can be hinting at, using a typical Jewish answer first, and then going on to explain how a non-Jewish believer can better defend himself against such an answer. Um, again, this is simply an exercise designed to explain some of, some, not all, some of why many Jewish people are unwilling to give up their monotheism. You know, we're talking about a standard debate between Christianity and Judaism. And quite often, the debate centers on Yeshua. How can Yeshua be God when God is clearly unknowable, unseeable, unapproachable, and on and on and on the, the arguments go from the Jewish side of the, side of the house. And so um, <clears throat> we are going to have to look at these arguments. Again, I'm not going to claim that we're going to come to every, every answer or tackle every answer or come to every conclusion, but uh, I think it's a topic worth looking at. Um, this commentary, I'm going to say this up front, 
this commentary set is not to be used as a standard witnessing technique among Jewish people, among my people. That's not what I wrote it for. It's just my own hashkafa. It's my own philosophy, my own th thoughts on this topic. And so if, if it inspires you to, to have dialogues with Jewish people on this topic, well, well, then that's fine. But don't say, well, well I read Ariel's commentary, and, and now I'm suddenly ready to take on the Jewish world of their monotheism and how they can't believe that Jesus is God and things like that. I'm not. I'm not imagining that my commentary is 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 uh, is, is that um, is that complete. It's not that comprehensive. Um, but again, if the material proves helpful in explaining the difficult topic to unbelievers and anti-missionaries, then the commentary will have served its purposes. Okay, you ready? The thing that we have to start with, when I say we, I'm going to speak from the vantage point of believers, both Jewish and Gentile, believers in Jesus as very God himself. I, I speak from that vantage point because that is who I am. I am a believer in Yeshua, and I do believe that he is one with God, and that he is the very image of God himself, and that he is in fact God himself even though I can't explain it. I don't understand how he is God. I, I don't understand how he, how, how he, how God can do that, how God could become a man, other than that that is what he did, and that is within his uh, power and his, his ability to do so. So I'm going to launch from, from, typically from this commentary point of view, I'm going to speak for myself. Um, every now and then I'll jump into the mind of, an, of, of a Jewish person who, who does not believe that Yeshua is God, um, and I'm 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 avoid using the term Yeshua is God because, uh, well, I, I suppose I shouldn't get ahead of myself. I'll explain why later. I mean, I do believe he's God. Don't get me wrong. I'm not shy of of confirming that or affirming it. I should say, confessing it that Yeshua is God. However, I think the term itself, the phrase Yeshua is God, can sometimes be a bit misleading. Also, and I'll explain why a little later. The Shema explains to its readers that God is one at the base level, at the Peshat level, at, at, at the very simple um, approach, God is one. And this is something that both Christians and Jews can agree on. There is only one God. There is no other God worthy of worship aside from, and I'm going to use the Tetragrammaton name as best as I understand it, Yahweh. There is no other God besides our God, Yerhevavhe. That much is true, and that much is that's monotheism, and that is affirmed by both Jews and Christians alike. We're talking about, like I mentioned earlier, matters of ontology, where we are attempting to perhaps dialogue on the difficult notion of how this one God, this one and only God, can and possibly did, you know, from a Jewish point of view, come to earth. And in, in an incarnated form, how could he take on humanity? How could he take on human flesh? That's where the topic is going. And again, God is one. That is a typical monotheistic answer uh, based on a traditional Jewish view of Deuteronomy 6.4, a.k.a. the Shema. God is one. And so, again, that is usually the first defense raised by Jewish people against the Christian claim that Yeshua is God. Because in their minds they naturally gravitate towards a, uh, a, a an understanding that if Yeshua is God and God is God, then there's one too many gods. Or, how can God, Yeshua be God when God clearly 
is above humans. Then God is not a man. They would claim God. God cannot take human form. God is a spirit, and on and on the arguments go. This subject will continue to baffle many Jews and Christians alike. And again, I I, use, I, I say that Christians are baffled, but in all honesty. Christians might not be the ones who feel baffled. And Christians might think that, that the Jewish people are baffled. But keep in mind, as I speak to Christians now, keep in mind that Jewish people don't feel that they're baffled either. They feel that you, the Christians, are the ones that are baffled. So both groups are convinced that the other party is the one with the confusion. Okay, So I just say this subject will continue to baffle many Jews and Christians alike because both groups have 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 an inadequate view of God. We we all have an inadequate view of God. We have an incomplete view of God, uh, yet complete in the revelation that God has given us. Don't don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say. How can God be one and yet somehow three? That's the question. How can he be three? Is he three? I mean, he you know, Yeshua is God. At least we affirm that in Christian circles, and yet we understand that that Yeshua prays to the Father. You know, is Yeshua schizophrenic? Is he praying to himself? And and worse yet, is his is himself answering back? You know that that gets really scary for the mind of someone who doesn't affirm this or embrace it. The matter is really made clear, and and, and again, this is my personal opinion. The matter is really made clear. I should say clearer when Christians explain to their Jewish counterparts that correct Christianity does not believe in three gods. They do not espouse to three gods. We, and I'm going to say we because sometimes I need to speak as a Christian. I, I get, let me pause there, I get emails from time to time from my readers who say, Aria, why do you, why do you use the pronoun we when clearly you're not Christian? Well, if I take the biblical understanding of the word Christian to mean a follower of Christ, then I am a Christian because I do follow Christ. However, the modern um, um, use of the word Christian can 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 apply to people like Madonna or Prince or or, or you know people that that I don't feel that their lifestyle represents correct biblical lifestyle. Um, certainly doesn't represent. Um, uh, servitude to the master, and so uh, sometimes I, you know, it's a shame that the word Christian gets wielded by anyone and everybody. It's just a politically correct term these days, um, and so I use the term Christian in its in its biblical true sense in, in my commentary to suggest a, a genuine follower of Mash- of Mashiach, of Messiah, of Christ, and so uh, you know I'm a Christian in that sense, um, but uh, uh, obviously I don't don't follow all of Christian theology. Um, Going back to my commentary here, correct Christianity does not believe in three gods. We, we, we Christians, we just need to say that right up front. We do not believe in three gods. We also affirm that God is one. We really do. We must. Because that's not only what the Bible teaches. That is what Christianity was founded upon. One God. We believe, however, in one God who expresses himself in a unity of three. Now again, I can't explain it. It's hashkafa. It's philosophy. I don't know how to explain this one God expressing himself in three separate persons. I don't know how that works. Indeed, God is one. There is only one God. The Shema affirms this. The character of the scriptures, both Old and New Covenants, if I can use that term, Old and New uh, Testaments, and, and, and get away with it, and you understand what I mean. They confirm this. The Shema 
is then the watchword of Jewish monotheism, and because Christianity was birthed out of Judaism, then the Shema really is the watchword of Christian monotheism. The Shema is foundation. Now, the Trinity doctrine, and I'm using the word Trinity in my commentary in quotation marks. I, I put that down there because down er, ever since its incept, uh, er, ever since its birth, Christianity has been wrestling with the, the this 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 concept of how the one God can be three. And to be sure, not everyone has had proper intentions, or I should say, not everyone has had has had proper um, uh, motives. Some people have crept in uh, into Christianity down through the centuries, especially earlier on, and they were not ready to affirm that one God expressed himself in three persons. Rather, they were ready to embrace a supposed reality that there are three gods. And, uh, the, and, 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 and what ends up happening is that heretical belief gets mixed in with true belief, or heresy gets mixed with truth, and, and the waters get muddied. And people who aren't able to um, discern the difference uh, or distinguish the difference between the heresy and the truth are the ones who suffer the most um, harm because they're not able to uh, uh, filter out the, 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 the filth from the truth. And so Trinity does have its roots in heresy. Um, I, I say that because there are... There, there are heretical beliefs that, that even predate Christianity of, of multiple sets of God, of, of triplets of gods that come together as one, or, that, or one God who can, who can wear three masks, and we're going to talk about modalism and, 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 and tritheism and things like that in this commentary. The point is, the word Trinity can be wielded by pagans, and it can be wielded by genuine Christians. And so, as my good friend, um, Messianic leader uh, George Hunt is fond of saying um, the word Trinity. Uh, we well, he's fond of saying that we have to really be careful with the terms that we use when we're having conversations uh, with with people who are not of the same faith as us. For instance, your standard conversations between Jews and Christians terms are vitally important, and and I have to agree with them. Okay, so the word Trinity, right? The Trinity doctrine itself has long been characterized by misunderstanding both among Jewish people as well as Christians. Right? Trinity is just a loaded term. I believe that most of the confusion actually stems from the language that we choose to use when describing the unified nature of our somewhat incomprehensible God. However, the Torah does not expect us to label God and stuff him in a box. That's perhaps our human weakness. Maybe that's why we fail to understand God is because we want to neatly package God. We'd like to label him. We live in a world of labels. You know, you go to the store, you pick up a can of soup. And what's on the soup? It's got a label. It says, it says chicken noodle soup. You pick up the next can, it says tomato soup. You pick up the next one, it says, you know, minestrone or whatever. If we didn't have the labels, we wouldn't know what was inside. We like labels. Labels help us to remain politically correct. Labels help us to identify with one another. Labels help us to, to, to have um, uh, uh, affiliations along party lines, along, along friendship lines, along uh, uh, um, religious lines. You know, uh, labels are helpful. Labels aren't bad. But when it comes to God, labels can sometimes be misleading. So we are, you know, you know we like labels, but the Torah doesn't give us the benefit 
of labeling God and putting him into a container. It just doesn't allow us to do so. Nor are we so smart that our systematic theological viewpoints of him will ever fully describe his wonderful glory. God is beyond description. Language fails to, to, to convey all that God is. Language itself is inadequate. We are just going to have to wait till Yeshua comes back. And we have the capacity to, uh, uh, to relate to God the way that He wants us to relate to Him. Yet again, the, 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 the paradox is this. The revelation that has been graciously granted to us, although it is in one sense incomplete, it is a complete one in another sense. That's the paradox. The revelation is incomplete, yet it is complete. Because it's God's revelation, and God doesn't give us incomplete revelations. He gives us enough of himself that we can relate to him completely. My relationship with Yeshua isn't lacking on the, in, in, the, um, in the justification sense. I'm saved. I'm as much saved today as I was when I first got saved 20 or so years ago. I'm no less saved, I should say. God doesn't love me less. and he, I'm sorry, he can't love me more, and he won't love me less. His revelation to me is a complete one. There's, there, there's nothing I need to press into when it comes to knowing God on the, on the salvific level. God reveals himself to me. I confess my sin. I surrender to the Messiah. And God accepts me. And the day that I was born again was a complete birth. That's what I'm trying to describe. I'm not lacking anything. It's, it was a complete uh, and perfect action on God's part to, to, to uh, uh, regenerate me from the inside out. Now, behaviorally, or as Christians would call it, um, sanctification, that, that's a different story. Oh yeah, that's a lifelong process. You know, I, I'm, I have not arrived yet in that regards. But as far as salvation is concerned, I'm fully saved. I, I don't lack any part of my salvation. Now I have to work it out. I have to walk it out. But God doesn't need to say, okay, now that you've accepted my son, there's still something you're missing. I get enough of the son to save me fully. And so the revelation is complete, even though uh, we're talking about its, its, um, its limitations. All right, The revelation that has been graciously granted, let me read that last line on the bottom of page 4 again. The revelation that has been graciously granted to us is a complete one, and that all that we need to know to maintain a right standing relationship with Hashem is found within the pages of His Word, and most specifically in the person of His only and unique Son, Yeshua our Messiah. And the reason I mention these are because I know some people who say, you know what, I've accepted Jesus, I've read the Bible, I've accepted the Spirit, and yet I know there's more out there for me. And so I'm going to start looking in other locations to find that missing ingredient. And what they end up usually doing is looking to Eastern religions or philosophy or, or humanistic, uh, uh, social humanism, um, this and that. And what they feel is they're, they're trying to scratch this itch that they have in their mind that suggests that they're missing something. And people like this live in their lives feeling inadequate. Even though they espouse to genuine faith in Yeshua, they really don't have a saving and satisfying faith in Yeshua. And that's wrong as well. I don't want to say that the revelation that God has given to us through His Son and through His Word is lacking to the point that we need to seek to be perfected somewhere else. We are perfect in Messiah. 
we sit in heavenly places, we are genuine heirs, fellow heirs, with the Messiah, uh, with God through Messiah, um, and, and all that that, that that we need to maintain a right relationship with God has been given to us both through His Son, His Word, and I might add through His Spirit. So there's nothing lacking there. But again, as Paul would say, it's a dim glass. We don't see the whole full of pictures. So let's read the verse and start picking it apart. Let's read the Pasuk, okay? Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Hear, O Israel, Adonai our God, Adonai is one. Now, again, anyone, <clears throat> anyone with some knowledge of the Hebrew text, and I, that's why I read the Hebrew for you, Shema Yisrael, anyone with some knowledge of the Hebrew text will realize that the word translated Adonai, in my translation above, is the four-letter name for Hashem, yod He vav He, also known as the Tetragrammaton. And again, the Jewish people use this name only in a very sacred and personal way, to be sure today. Um, Torah-observant Jews in reverential fear of misuse never speak the name yod vav as it is uh, spelled out. We use circumlocutions, Hashem, uh, Adonai, uh, um, uh, different, I can't, off the top of my head, I can't think of any of the other circumlocutions. Ado Shem shows up. Um, yod K Vav K instead of Yod He Vav He. Um, uh, uh, different things like that. Uh, Elohim, sometimes Elohim is, is used, but Elohim will show up sometimes. So again, because of the understanding that the Shema defines, as it were, the oneness of God, which is what the Hebrew word Echad implies. When it says, Hero is where the Lord of God, the Lord is one. The Lord is Echad, or is one, the word there. Um, it's no wonder that many Jews are fiercely monotheistic. After all, let's look at the Pasuk again. Is this not what the Pashat, the plain sense of the verse in Deuteronomy is teaching? You have to agree. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is Echad. He is one. He is the only, he is the one and only, I saw it in one translation. Okay? The word echad, however, it's an interesting word. Uh, <clears throat> echad teaches us that God is the only God that we are to serve. That's what echad implies. It's not really, if, if we're honest, if we're thorough, I should say, in our research. The word echad, this, this pasuk alone, is not really a lesson in ontology. It really isn't. It's a lesson in monotheism. It really is. It's not ontology. It's not trying to tell us what God is made of. It's simply trying to tell us that there is only one God. So, the word Echad can be translated alone. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. The Lord alone. No others. Okay? Fiercely monotheistic. To be sure, that is how um, many Jewish people read the verse in its primary and natural understanding. Uh, Hear, Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Now, this is, and I'm just telling you right now, this is the primary meaning conveyed by the use of the word Echad in this Pasuk. That's what the verse is trying to teach. Okay, That God is our only God is paramount to correctly understanding any revelation of Him in His Word. He is our God, and He alone is our God. We alone are to serve. We are to serve Him alone. Okay, We are not to share... Uh, reverence of him with another god because as god is explaining to us there are no others besides god that's what echad is trying to say okay it's about um it's probably about 
oh, this is a good place to call it part um, B. Um, so what we'll do is I'll break it off here and we'll call this part B. Um, and when we return, we're in the middle of page five. We're going to talk about blurring the lines, and, and I'm going to start introducing the notion of um, how the the apostolic scriptures, scriptures, aka the New Testament, bring in the idea that Yeshua is revealing the Father to his people. And what ends up happening is all of a sudden we have this quote unquote unclear uh, revelation. I say unclear in the sense that if it were crystal clear, we wouldn't have these discussions at all. Well, certainly Yeshua is God. See, here's the proof. But Yeshua seems to veil his revelation, yet at the same time reveal it. He's, he's working off of both sides. He's revealing his revelation of who he really is to those who have open and willing hearts to accept and embrace who he really is. Yet at the same time, he's veiling his revelation to those who would mock and blaspheme. And so... Um, we're going to talk about this topic in the next um, section, so stay with us. This is uh, the commentary to Parashat Ve'et Hanan, and my name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi.